Okay, we are, uh, wow, this is part 19 in this uh, discussion of the end times, and we are looking at, continuing our look at this point at the Olivet Discourse. Uh, who can remind me what the Olivet Discourse is? Let's see how much you've been paying attention. Anybody? Okay. It's when Jesus is talking to his disciples about end times. Okay, good. Yeah, what Jesus, we, we say what Jesus had to say about his return or about the end times. Why do we call it the Olivet Discourse? Because they did it on Mount Olivet. That's right, Mount of Olives. Yeah, very good. So, yeah, we're going to uh, pick up where we left off last time. So if you want to be turning to Matthew 24, and uh, as a reminder uh, for those of you live streaming or watching the video at some point down the road, uh, and we do get a ton of traffic, people watching these videos. So uh, you can pick up the book at the online store at notbyworks.org. Or if you're here and uh, don't have it, there are some at the back table uh, here in, uh, at the church. So, well, let's, uh, let's pick it up here. Let me get to that slide with Matthew 24. We'll kind of review a little bit so we set the stage because we've, we've covered everything that really Jesus had to say in answer to the question. Remember the question on the table that uh, essentially the entire discourse, the entire sermon that Jesus preached is answering is what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. And so in Matthew 24, the first 20, uh, well, 31 verses or so is Jesus answering that question. And we left off with verse 31 last time, but just to review, uh, the first 14 verses deal with general signs that Jesus is giving uh, of, of his return. When you begin to see these things, you know that my coming is near. That's what he's talking about. And we, we talked about several weeks ago how that correlates perfectly with the uh, tribulation period and the sealed judgments and the book of Revelation. And then beginning in verse 15 of Matthew 24, Jesus moves into more detailed signs, specifically the abomination of desolation. The abomination of desolation sounds like a mouthful, but it's just something that Daniel prophesied would happen in Daniel chapter 9. And it is when the Antichrist, the future world leader that is indwelt by Satan and ruling the world in a, a time of unprecedented tyranny and evil, it's when he sets himself up as God and demands that the whole world worship him. And he goes into the temple in Jerusalem and he, uh, he makes a sacrifice and says, you've got to worship me now, I'm God. And so it's at that point, which is at the midpoint of the tribulation, that uh, things really begin to heat up. And so Jesus begins in verse 15 by saying, when you see that, boy, it's getting close. Head for the hills, watch out, so forth and so on. And then last week we looked at signs immediately preceding the second coming, which you see the outline there on the screen. And that was verses 27 to 31. We focused primarily last week on 29 to 31. We had picked up 26 and 27 in the previous session. And so the signs that immediately precede his second coming, basically cosmic signs, lightnings, thunderings, an earthquake like never before seen on earth. And then he comes back. And when he does, we pointed out in verse 31 where we left off, that he will regather the nation of Israel into the land in fulfillment of Deuteronomy 30, verse 3, and Isaiah 27, 13, and many, many, many other Old Testament verses. And it's been interesting, you know, uh, obviously all eyes are on the Middle East right now, as yet again, there's a, another battle over there in, uh, in Israel. 
And um, I've actually been working a little bit this week on a message I'm planning uh, to give in Tulsa on uh, the nation of Israel and God's plan of the ages. And so it's really been interesting to review the history. You know, yesterday was the 73rd anniversary of the day Israel became a nation again, May 15, 1948. And uh, in that 73 years, there have been many, many, many battles and wars and attacks and all kinds of uprisings over there, over that land. The one that we're currently seeing is really one of the worst ones in decades. And who knows what it's going to lead to. It really is a powder keg. And I was talking to a friend of mine this week on the phone who pointed out, you know, we've been, we've been comparing notes for many, many, many years, and especially about just the Luciferian conspiracy and how what's happening behind the scenes and what's, who's really pulling the strings and how things are getting, setting the stage for the future end times events. And he said, you know, a lot of times we, we spend so much time talking about setting the stage that we forget when things really do happen, it's going to happen like that. It's going to happen overnight. And so we don't know. I mean, we all may wake up tomorrow and we may be involved in a world war. I mean, you just don't know. That's how quickly things happen. And certainly uh, that's what we see happening over uh, right now in the Middle East. Um, and it's, uh, it's a pretty, pretty incredible thing that we see before our eyes. And it has prophetic implications. Anytime something happens in Israel, you know, when you see the Al-Aqsa Mosque burning right there on the Temple Mount, or you see other uh, things surrounding the Temple Mount happening, it sort of gets your attention. It doesn't mean that it's the fulfillment of prophecy, because the next prophetic event to be fulfilled, the next fulfillment that will take place, according to Scripture, is what? The rapture, right? So 16% of the Bible is unfulfilled prophecy. When the rapture happens, that 16% begins to fall in line one right after the other, leading up to the eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth. So we can't look at something that's happening today and say that fulfills such and such a prophecy, because it doesn't. But it certainly sets the stage. And, and, and the way we like to say it is it might have prophetic implications. And what we see happening in Israel undoubtedly has prophetic implications, the same way that the rebirth of the nation 73 years ago had prophetic implications. Um, doesn't mean that it had to be reborn before the rapture or before the tribulation. Uh, you know, for years, remember for 1,800 some odd years, there was no Israel on any world map. They didn't exist. It was an ancient biblical city, you know, kind of like Nineveh or one of these cities that no longer exists, right? Uh, and yet we still believed and, and people taught who believe the Bible in its literal grammatical historical approach that the rapture would happen, and then they figured Israel after the rapture would be reconstituted as a nation so that the Antichrist could eventually rebuild the temple and set himself up as God to fulfill all these prophecies. But then when Israel was rebuilt in 1948, it just sort of changed the way we thought things would happen. Now we're thinking, well, the, the, the nation of Israel is already a nation, so after the rapture, nothing like that has to happen. It's already in place. All that has to happen is the temple uh, to be rebuilt. And so... A lot of times people ask that question about the rebuilding of the temple. And first of all, the mosque is, is right there on the Temple Mount, so we would have to be moved. Uh, but second of all, people say, well, so, uh, you know, we don't think the rapture could happen anytime soon because there's no temple. Well, that's not true at all. Um, in the same way that Israel could have been rebirthed after the rapture, the temple can re be rebuilt after the rapture. So we don't know how long it's going to be. Let me put up a chart just to kind of illustrate this point. We don't know how long this period of time over here is going to be after the rapture. You know, unspecified. 
But after the rapture, chaos is going to ensue, and the world will be in utter chaos. And if you haven't watched my uh, video on one minute after the rapture, I recommend you watch that. It kind of paints a picture biblically of, of what's going to be happening. And it's during that time that the temple could be rebuilt after the Antichrist is unveiled, signs the peace treaty, all eyes are on Israel because there had been a northern aggressor that had tried to uh, take over Israel, uh, Magog. And, uh, and so in that time, they could put, put the temple together such that by the time of the midpoint, as you see on there on the screen, the abomination of desolation, there's already a temple standing. So, but that said, just like we thought used to think the same thing about the rebirth of Israel as a nation, if we were to see the temple rebuilt in our lifetime, obviously before the rapture, uh, that would have prophetic implications, wouldn't it? It would make us think, wow, the rapture must be getting close because now we've got a nation of Israel as a nation state. We've got a temple standing. Everything is ready. All the Lord needs to do is call the church home to meet him in the air, and then everything can begin to unfold. So we have to distinguish between a uh, setting of the stage and an actual fulfillment of prophecy. There are no prophecies being fulfilled today, but we certainly see a lot of geopolitical things happening that are preparing the way for what may come. So we left off at verse 31. The Lord has returned and um, to establish his kingdom. He's regathered Israel into the land. And, uh, and now the rest of the Olivet Discourse is going to be sort of the application phase. You know, Jesus is the ultimate preacher, being the Son of God, obviously. And so any good preacher is going to deal with the text and explain the meaning of it, and then he's going to get into the so what question. What do we do with this information? And Jesus has answered the disciples' questions in these first 31 verses by giving sign after sign after sign. And he says, when you, Israel, see these signs, you know that my return is near. And now he's going to move into the application phase. So let's pick it up with the parable of the fig tree, which is verses 32 uh, to 35. So he says, Now learn this parable of the fi from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, the ones he's just described, you know that it, my return, the kingdom that they asked about, is near at the doors. All right, so the parable of the fig tree begins a series of five consecutive sections in the Olivet Discourse, and I'm going to break this down for you as we go through this in the coming weeks, uh, that deal with watchfulness, basically readiness, telling the future nation that will be alive at the return of Christ, be ready. And this is a crucial theme in Jesus' teaching because of deception. Remember, we've pointed out weeks ago how the, in the beginning section of the Olivet Discourse, Jesus repeatedly says, be not deceived, be not deceived, be not deceived. And deception is going to reach unprecedented heights, a climax, really, during this final seven-year battle. A deception, we know, from 2 Timothy 3.13 is getting worse and worse. And we live in a, a depraved, fallen world where Satan is the prince. The whole world is under the sway of the wicked one. He is a liar and the father of lies, Jesus said. And so during this final seven-year battle prior to the return of Christ to establish his kingdom, deception will be uh, at its worst. And that's why Jesus warns against it. So it's not surprising that the bulk 
of the Olivet Discourse really is the you know, constitutes these parables or these analogies, these reminders to that future nation that will be alive at the time to not be deceived, to watch out, to be ready, to be watchful. So we call these a watchfulness section, the watchfulness section. And as I outline it, I see these five sections, they begin and end with a parable and then have three analogies in the middle. So it goes parable, analogy, 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 and then a parable. And so uh, let's deal with the first parable. Again, Jesus calls it a parable, the parable of the fig tree. Now, what he's essentially saying here is don't miss the signs. And we, here we are sort of on the beginnings of spring here in Colorado. And so it's pretty easy for us to make the connection because as we look around, we see trees beginning to bud, don't we? All of the dark stuff is beginning to turn green. You know, Jeff in his prayer during our band practice talked about how this looks a lot like Ireland or something like that, right? And that's, that's true. It's starting to green up, isn't it? Well, what does that tell us? It tells us that summer is near, right? And that's all Jesus is saying here. Uh, this is not a prophecy, Nothing about these two verses is a prophecy. Um, it's an analogy, a parable specifically. Um, you know, most of the Jews missed Christ's first coming, and it'll be even easier to miss it the next time because of the intensifying deception. And so Jesus says, look out, pay attention, watch for the signs. And he uses the arrival of summer uh, as, a, as a metaphor. So sadly, um, a lot of Bible teachers through the years have misunderstood this passage and assumed that it's a parable, the same, they do, same thing they do with Psalm 83 and other passages. Um, and, and particularly back in uh, the second half of the 20th century, after Israel was rebirthed as a nation in 1948, after World War II, people began to say, oh, you know, the fig tree represents Israel. And Israel has been reborn, and it's, it's you know, putting forth its leaves. And so, uh, you know, this must be the beginning of the end. But that, that's completely taking current events and bringing it to the Bible and trying to find something that fits. If you understand this passage in its plain, normal sense, Jesus is just giving all of the signs, answering the question that the disciples had. And again, not to belabor the point, but... I know we've always got new people watching this, and I want to make sure you understand the entire Olivet Discourse, which is Jesus teaching about his return, is in answer to the question of the disciples, what will be the sign of your coming? When, when will this age end and the kingdom come? That's what we want to know. When will the kingdom come? And so, um, having given all those signs, he's now saying, when you see these things, you know that uh, my return is near. And then... That in the same context, it's part of the same section in my outline, he then follows it up with assuredly. Assuredly is a connecting word there. Uh, you know, having said, when you see the parable of the fig tree, you know summer is near. Similarly, when you see all these things you know that I've just said, you know that my return is near. And then he says, assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Now here's where really people get confused. And again, going back to the fig tree, which they mistakenly classify as a prophecy, and then misunderstanding the phrase this generation, they say, oh, Israel, the fig tree budded in 1948 when Israel became a nation, and then within one generation Christ will return. 
So as I've talked about, you had a lot of people out there writing books about 1988 and how the rapture was going to happen in 1988 and the end times would begin and it would all be over. And that was largely based on this misunderstanding of these few verses right here in Matthew 24. But yeah, whenever you see pronouns in, in Greek and in English for that matter, uh, you always want to trace them and make sure you're understanding what he's talking about. We see several of them, them here, these things. Now he said these things back in verses 32 and 33. He says, when you see all these things, the same these things that he's talking about there, the signs that I've just talked to you about, when you see all those signs that I've just described, that's the same thing that we see in verses 34 and 35, these things that I'm telling you. And so what he's saying is the generation that sees all these signs, this one, the one that I've just been talking about, uh, so the, 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 the antecedent of this generation or the reference of this generation is not the generation to whom I'm speaking, it's the generation about whom I'm speaking. Does that make sense? The generation I've been talking about, the one that sees all these signs, the abomination of desolation and the earthquakes and the cosmic signs and the persecution and all of these things, that generation, once they see the sign, the ones that see the signs, will not pass away until I've returned. And that's, that's what he's trying to say. So to kind of illustrate this, um, if you go back to verse 33, the one that sees these things is the same one that will see all these things. So these, these, these verses go together, verses 32 all the way to 35. Uh, and once you understand those two pronouns are talking about the same thing, then it becomes clear. The generation that sees all these signs is the generation that will see his return. Yeah? It, would this be one of the verses that preterists use to say that all biblical prophecy was fulfilled in the first century? Absolutely. In fact, they hang their hat on it. Yeah, if you could steal all of their Bibles and cut out Matthew 24, 34, and 35, their the entire movement would fall apart. Because that this is it. And I've written, I meant to make copies, but uh, I'll try to remember next week, or if you're watching uh, from somewhere else, if you'll email me, I'll send it to you. But I've written a journal article that's 30 pages long, painstakingly going through this verse and proving that this generation is the generation that sees the signs, not the generation that's listening to Jesus in the first century. But absolutely, they, they say that uh, His return had to occur, and that's why they put His return in 70 A.D., and they, they um, uh, spiritualize all of the details of his return, like we talked about uh, when he says, for example, in verse 29, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven. They say that was fulfilled when, uh, Jeruse when uh, Rome marched in under the general Titus uh, and... Uh, burned the city, destroyed the temple, and so the, the flames uh, were the, the lightning and the smoke over the city were blocking out the sun. That was the sun being darkened. And so Christ returned, according to the preterists, in 70 A.D. So I hope you enjoyed it because this is the kingdom, right? Yippee. <laughs> so I don't know if that makes what that makes Biden. But anyway, this is the kingdom, according uh, to the preterists. But as you read the Bible... And you, and you look at the description of the kingdom, which the Old Testament is rich with descriptions of the time when the Messiah, the King of Kings, takes the throne. Nothing about what we see today 
approximates that. It's not even close. Talk about a time when Christ is going to rule with a rod of iron and perfect justice and righteousness and peace when the Prince of Peace to, you know, sits on the throne. And Isaiah says the governments will all be upon his shoulder. Well, if that's, if that's the kingdom, then why do we see you know, Hamas launching rocket after rocket into Israel such that almost every major city in Israel is under attack right now? Why? Would Christ allow that? Not, not from the description that we see of the millennium. So, uh, so absolutely, uh, it's just very poor hermeneutics. Again, not a personal attack on preterists. I'm sure they love the Lord, and I'm sure they value His Word. They just are absolutely dead wrong in how they interpret it. Christ has not returned yet, and this passage here does not refer to the generation to whom Jesus is speaking. It refers to the generation about whom Jesus is speaking. Any other questions about that? Good question. So then he moves, so that's a parable, then he's going to give three analogies. And so let's move now to another passage that is often confused and misinterpreted and misapplied, and that's the analogy of Noah and the flood. So if you look at verses 36 and 37... Jesus says, but of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Again, this is probably even more so than this generation, because most people, unless you're heavily influenced by a preterist or even a partial preterist perspective, uh, most people get the generation. It's, it's pretty obvious in the context when you trace the pronouns. But this one, man, this is probably the most misinterpreted section of the Olivet uh, Discourse. So verse 36 is the key. It sets the tone for the next several exhortations that Jesus is going to give all the way to the first half of, verse 20, of chapter 25. Uh, so all of these analogies or illustrations are what I call readiness stories. Readiness stories in light of the fact that no one knows the day or the hour. So you need to be ready. Obviously, if you don't know, it, it follows that you should be ready. So the comparison with Noah must be understood solely within the context of Jesus' point. Readiness, awareness, don't miss it. Be on the lookout. And so a lot of people go astray when they start grabbing unrelated details from you know, Genesis and the Noah story and applying them to Jesus' statement here. But as I, uh, my friend Andy Woods pointed out in, in a two-hour Q&A that we did, a podcast a couple weeks ago, um, and if you want to watch that, you can just check it out at our website, and I'm sure Andy has it on his as well. Just click on podcasts. But he said, we don't have to wonder in what way do the days of Noah compare to today, because the very next verse begins with four. <laughs> For, just like in Noah's day, blah, 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 and then same thing today. So we're, he, he doesn't leave us wondering what the, the analogy is. He, he completely explains it in detail. And here's the point. I'm going to tell you the point, and then I'm going to kind of illustrate it uh, by looking at the passage. His point is simple. Just as unbelievers were caught off guard when the flood came in judgment, so too many will be caught off guard at Christ's return. Period. That's it. So when we see analogies, um, you, you know, you got to keep the big picture in mind. Don't try to find a corresponding reality to every detail of the analogy, right? 
Um, you know, it, it's like if I said, uh, you know, to Zoe as we're tossing, you know, when we were at the park and kids are throwing the football and kicking the soccer ball, and I say to Zoe, you know, watch out for the ball, she's not going to say, well, what color? I mean, that's irrelevant. It's just I'm trying to say keep, be alert, right? Look up, watch out, heads up, right? So uh, just as in Noah's day a warning was issued, judgment is coming, be ready, and many ignored it. In the same way, during the tribulation period, a warning is being issued, judgment is coming, and many people will miss it. It's very simple. And the rest of Jesus' explanation about the Noah analogy makes all of this uh, abundantly clear. So, um, let's take a look. She says, For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came, and took them all away. Now again, I, I know folks that, you know, great folks, solid Bible teaching people who say, well, this can't possibly be talking about the tribulation because Noah's description here is eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage. It sounds like everything was normal. That's not, the, that's not his point. His point is in Noah's day, they were not paying attention to the warning going about the normal activity. And the same thing is going to be true in the tribulation. Now, the circumstances are going to be different, right? Different day. It's 6,000 years later or whatever. So, 4,000 years later. So, the circumstances will be different, but the same principle is there. People are going to be going through their routine and, you know, ignoring the judgment, ignoring the impending judgment, ignoring the warning signs. Not only that, but... By the way, who's to say after the rapture, during the seven-year tribulation, of course, seven years is a long time. People are going to be getting married, right? People are going to be eating. People aren't going to be fasting for seven years. There's going to be some semblance of normality. It'll be a new normal. But just as in the same way, say, you know, 20 years ago on 9-11, the world changed forever, and especially in the immediate aftermath of it, people were trying to get their bearings, their world was shaken, very quickly on, we <clears throat> very quickly on we learned we settled into a new normal, and you know we allowed ourselves to be groped by blue-shirted TSA agents every time we go through a, get on an airplane. We allowed ourselves to be listened into on all of our phones by the NSA without a warrant. We you know a lot of things were different, but we settled in right, and now here we are 20 years later. By the way, the Luciferians love 20-year markers. I could go ask me sometime, and I'll go back and show you in time how about every 20 years something uh, major world-changing happens according to their plan. But here we are 20 years later, and we have this pandemic, and of course the world's changed, right? So we were all, you know, people were wearing masks, and people were not able to go to school or go to work. Businesses were shut down. The economy crashed. Um, couldn't go to concerts, couldn't hold conferences like Not By Works does. Um, but yet during the pandemic, people still got married and people still ate. Some of us ate a little more than we should have when there was not much else to do. But the point is, just because the Bible's description of the tribulation is a time of this climactic cosmic struggle between God and Satan and the wrath of God is being poured out and the wrath of Satan is being poured out and the world is falling apart and there's all kinds of craziness, it's still going to be a world. It's still going to have a world leader, in this case the Antichrist, still going to have people sleeping and waking up and going about their business. 
The point of the Noah analogy is just this. Just as in Noah's day, people ignored the warnings and they were caught off guard. In the tribulation, many will ignore the warnings and be caught off guard. Now, another reason that sometimes people mistake this passage for the rapture, and we've already detailed, I'll, I'll touch on it again here in a moment, how the Olivet Discourse has nothing to do with the rapture. The rapture as a biblical prophetic concept had not even been introduced to the world yet. That didn't happen until the next day in the upper room when Jesus introduces it to the disciples. And then later on during the church age, the Holy Spirit revealed the doctrine of the rapture through Paul in, in, in the epistles. Um, so at this point, we already know that the rapture wasn't on the radar anywhere. But we can also determine this just by careful reading of the context. And so because Jesus says, uh, you know, the flood came and took them all away, and then he's going to go on to say, we'll come back to that in a second, but he's going to go on to say, two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, the other left. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour the Lord is coming. That sounds kind of rapturesque, doesn't it? Two people walking along, one taken, one left, you know, and, and so we think the guy left is the one left behind, and that, you know, Tim LaHaye gave those words to Jesus so that he knew how to describe it, right? There's one left behind, uh, but that's not what's going on here at all. How do we know that? Who are the ones taken away? Well, let's just be good Bereans and look at this verse, and then I'm going to compare another verse which seals the deal, but if we're going back to the analogy... Who was taken away when the flood judgment came? And who was left behind? The unrighteous were taken away. They were swept away in the flood. Who was left behind on the earth to inhabit the earth and repopulate the earth? The righteous, namely Noah and his eight family members, right? So if all we do is just listen to what Jesus is saying and make the comparison, it should be clear. But what's really interesting is this analogy was given by Jesus on another occasion a few days earlier. Not at the Olivet Discourse, but, but in a different setting. In other words, he, he, this was so meaningful to him that as he was speaking, and as recorded in Scripture, at least on twice, two occasions that we know of in Scripture, he gave the same analogy. And the second analogy was in Luke 17. And in Luke 17, there is no room for doubt as to who the ones taken away are. Let's compare it. Uh, as in the days of Noah were, this is Matthew 24 where we just read, now we're looking at Luke 17. As in the days of Noah, as in the days of Noah, they were eating and drinking, giving in marriage. They were eating and drinking and giving in marriage. And then in Matthew's account, Jesus says, the flood came and took them all away. Luke's account, the flood came and what? Destroyed them all. This cannot be the rapture. This absolutely cannot be the rapture. The ones taken away were taken away in judgment, right? So when we see Jesus go on to say one taken and the other left, we know that the being taken away means being destroyed. So for any number of reasons, it's clear that this does not have anything to do with the rapture. The overall context, so forth and so on, the fact that it's about Israel, it's the time of Jacob's trouble, it's the future seven-year tribulation, why would Jesus insert church-age truth in the midst of his discussion with Israel about the Messianic kingdom when the church didn't even exist yet? But the passages that people point to, the main passage that people point to to, quote, prove that the rapture is there, 
is here in uh, Matthew 24, and it, it isn't the rapture. So if you compare the global flood judgment, as Jesus does, with the second coming judgment, the, the uh, comparisons make sense. During Noah's day, the world is warned that a flood is coming. Prior to the return of Christ, the world is warned that the judge is coming. In Noah's day, there's only one way to avoid judgment. Same thing in the future tribulation period. Uh, during Noah's day, many were deceived and ignored the warnings. In fact, in Noah's day, the whole world was deceived. Uh, same thing will be true during Jesus' day, uh, during the tribulation, in the context of Jesus' return, as Jesus makes clear with his repeated references to deception. Those left behind in uh, Noah's day were the righteous who would then repopulate the earth. Those left behind on the earth at the return of Christ are the righteous at the beginning of the millennium who are going to repopulate the earth for the next thousand years. The ones taken off the earth in Noah's day were swept away in judgment by the flood. And similarly, when Christ comes back, those taken away and taken off the earth will be those who are swept away in judgment into the everlasting fire. Jesus says, depart from me. Taken away, see the connection? Depart from me into the everlasting fire, prepared for his de the devil and his angels. And he says that in Matthew 25 as he continues his sermon. And then, of course, as I mentioned, in, after the global flood judgment, the righteous repopulate the earth. And in this, after the second coming, the righteous repopulate the earth. So, any questions about the uh, analogy of Noah and the comparison to the second coming? This is the rest of the passage. Two men in a field, one taken, the other left. Two women grinding at the mill, one taken, the other left. Um, you know, the ones taken are the ones that are unsaved, taken away in judgment. The ones left behind are the righteous who believe the gospel and are left on earth to inherit the kingdom. Uh, but then he concludes, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. So we see, again, the opening statement uh, with the parable of the fig tree, which is a parable, then the first of three analogies, and then he's going to close out again with the parable of the wise and foolish version. So any questions now about Noah? Does that make sense? Any comments or questions? I'm hoping there'll be some, so we, this is a good stopping point. I don't want to continue on and then end up stopping in an awkward spot. But I, I will mention that a lot of the colleagues that I uh, work with in uh, Bible prophecy conferences um, uh, make much about the, the days of Noah, and there's even conferences called Days of Noah. And I believe, even though I might agree with their conclusions, I disagree with them using this passage and Jesus' reference to Noah as a basis for their conclusions. Because what that movement or that those Bible prophecy teachers do is based on Jesus' reference to, as in the days of Noah, so shall it be now. They go back to the days of Noah and they find every conceivable detail and they say, we're going to see a recurrence of those things. Specifically, they talk a lot about the Nephilim and the hybrid demon-human uh, people. Well, I don't need Matthew 24 to know biblically that there are Nephilim still around today because the book of Genesis tells us that there were Nephilim before the flood and also afterward. And so 
of course, the Nephilim being part of Satan's conspiracy and part of the demonic unseen element of the conspiracy. Remember, a conspiracy is two or more people or entities working together for nefarious means. The Luciferian conspiracy is Satan, demons, and human beings. Okay, So in that demonic element, the unseen realm, the spiritual forces of wickedness that Paul talks about in Ephesians 6, there are demons, the fallen angels, but there are also hybrids, the, the product of that horrific sin in which angels left their proper domain, cohabited with women, and produced a hybrid race of partially human, partially demonic beings. And those are, survived the flood because being spirit beings, they could rise back up into the heavenlies during the flood, and then after it was over, come back down. Human beings all died at the flood, except for Noah and his family. And so that's the reason the text tells us there were also afterwards in that day Nephilim. And so I totally appreciate the, the, the sensitivity to and awareness of the demonic realm and how Satan is ratcheting it up. And if you watched a Spirit of the Antichrist series, I, one of those seven characteristics of the Antichrist and the tribulation period that I say, said we are seeing an uptick in is the spirit of phenomena and paranormal and all kinds of demonic spiritual activity. And I think that's a setting of the stage. The rise in that indicates to me that we're probably getting close to the return of Christ. Can't guarantee it, can't pick a date, but it just seems logical. And I think part of that is this, uh, you know, multiple elements of demonic activity. Now remember, the demons themselves who committed that sin back in Genesis 6, they're permanently confined in Tartarus. Right? So let's think about the cosmic struggle. You've got, you know, the angelic realm and angels do not procreate. So the same number of angels that God created in the beginning is how many there are today. The Bible tells us one third of those fell and became demons. So already in this struggle, Satan's outnumbered. I mean, he's outnumbered in the sense that, you know, God's the other team and God, God wins and God is more powerful. God is omniscient and sovereign and all, he's the creator of the universe. But just looking at it from a human perspective, he's already outnumbered two to one in the terms of the demonic realm. But after that sin where those, some of those demons cohabited with women and formed a hybrid race uh, in an attempt to you know, completely destroy the human DNA so that the seed of the woman that had just been talked about in Genesis 3 couldn't, it would be corrupt. Jesus would be born a sinner. Uh, but, but those demons that did that, they were judged and condemned and put in Tartarus, the Bible tells us, permanently, not to be released until the end of everything when they're cast into the lake of fire. So even the one-third of, of angels, which became demons, is now less. And we have no biblical indication that the remaining demons would ever commit the same sin again. In fact, uh, uh, Andy Woods, and he and I differ a little bit on this perspective, but uh, that's okay. I told him he's allowed to be wrong. I respect that. Um, but anyway, uh, he points out, and I think he's probably right, that given how seriously those demons who left their proper domain and cohabited with women were judged, it seems unlikely that another demon would make the same mistake. But the point is they don't have to because there's already that hybrid race out there partnering with demons and helping Satan in his conspiracy. So uh, so I, I, I respect and appreciate those who point out some of that and, and, and I agree with it, 
But when they hinge it all on Matthew 24 and the days of Noah, I think they're missing the point. Yeah, Lucas. Do you think there are other ways that they are trying to create a, I wouldn't be in a hybrid necessarily, but a non-human? Oh, absolutely. So the question, in case it didn't pick up on the video, is do I think there are other ways in which the Luciferians are trying to, com to c create competing entities and elements that are part of this battle. Absolutely. Artificial intelligence, clones, um, you know, uh, injecting people with an operating system, right? Um, so, yeah, I think uh, Satan is pulling out all the stops, and we're seeing, uh, seeing uh, some amazing things happen with genetics. Um, and uh, so, no, I think they're, he's hard at work doing that. Good point. Yeah, nanotechnology is the core. It's the is the bedrock of it because they can inject you with things that are you know, obviously nano, microscopic or even less than microscopic that uh, can fundamentally control and change. and And they've been doing that for a long time. If you look at some of the CIA's programs, the the big umbrella program of MK Ultra that had literally dozens upon dozens of sub programs like Operation Monarch and several others where they, even before nanotechnology, they were using drugs and chemicals to create super soldiers. Anybody seen the movie series Jason Bourne? Okay, that's based on reality. That uh, Hollywood, which is the seat of satanic activity, always has been since its inception. Hollywood, the holly tree is what witches used to take branches from to use to perform their spells. That's why it's called Hollywood. And so art imitates life. I recognize that sometimes life imitates art, and they want that. They want kids to watch movies and go out and do it. But fundamentally, art imitates uh, life. So they're, they're, what you see in Hollywood is based on true life uh, events. And it's right out of the CIA's MKUltra where they create these super soldiers who are controlled assassins who can be triggered either chemically, psychologically, all, all kinds of different ways to be turned on and off. And so, yeah, there's, uh, and we talk about, about a lot of this in the Spirit of the Antichrist series, but uh, excellent point. Yes? I don't have a lot of time, but I, I, I want to go to verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. And that is always, nor the Son. Yeah. It's like, wait a minute. And, and you didn't have that. You didn't have that on the... On the I had it. There it was. No, you don't have it. It's in yellow, but of the day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, but the Father only. So yeah, it was the first verse we put up. So you're, you said that has always bothered you? Yes. Me too. Yes, so, it shouldn't be there. Yeah, and I was hoping <laughs> it shouldn't be there. Well, you'll have to take that up with God, the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Oh, that must be a textual. Let me let me find it here in my. Yeah. So the critical text adds "nor the sun." I teach from the New King James, which is based on the majority text. So the majority of ancient Greek manuscripts don't have that phrase. 
but it really doesn't change anything because either way, Jesus said, my father only, which by definition means not the son. If it's my father only, he's the one speaking. So, but your point is still well taken, and, and it is a troubling passage, and I was kind of hoping we would run out of time. Oh, look at that. <laughs> no, I think it's just one of those biblical antinomies where we're trying to reconcile etern the eternal sovereignty of God who is outside of time, space, and matter with man's perspective temporally. And obviously we know it's, it's kind of the same struggle that we have in terms of Jesus' earthly ministry, right? How can he be the eternal, omniscient, omnipresent Son of God and yet exist in a locale? How can he be the eternal God and yet be hungry and be tired and, and cry, right? So there's this uh, sort of conflict between his deity and his humanity. It's, it's the hypostatic union, we call it theologically, in which he is 100% God and 100% man. And so you have to sort of recognize that here he's speaking almost anthropomorphically to the disciples. Obviously he's God, he knows all. It doesn't make him a liar. He's just speaking in a way that the disciples would understand. But somehow in the eternal Godhead, it's worked out to where God, the Father, is the one that's going to push the button on the final end times event. And, and again, it doesn't make sense to us, but we accept it. The same way we accept things like sovereignty and free will. We know God chose us before the foundation of the world, yet we also know we have free will to either believe or reject the gospel, and we accept them both. So I know that's not a satisfying answer, but um, people a lot smarter than me have wrestled with this for hundreds of years, and, and we just have to accept it as God's word and not try to fit it into our world. Okay, well, we'll stop there, we'll take a break, and then we'll come back for our worship service starting at uh, 10 o'clock.